0: I'm Professor Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. this episode of the Global Development Primer podcast, we're happy to have Jennifer Piscopo join us today. She's an associate professor of politics at Occidental College in Los Angeles, California. Her research on gender and politics, democracy, and political representation has appeared in over 20 peer-reviewed journals, including the American Journal of Political Science, Politics and Gender, and Comparative Political Studies, and numerous edited volumes. She co-edits the academic journal Politics, groups and identities and consults regularly for international organizations such as UN Women. A frequent commentator in the domestic and international media, her public-facing writing on women and political empowerment has appeared in outlets such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, the Boston Review, Miss Magazine, and the Smithsonian. And we're very happy to have Jennifer Pisco join us today on GDP. Hi, Jen.
1: Hi, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
0: Oh, it's a real pleasure. Really, uh, really glad that we could, uh, we could bring you bring on board to, to share some thoughts on, on the really engaging work that you've been, you've been up to lately. And um, if I could just dive right into it, you, you recently published an article about women leaders and superior COVID-19 performance. And this is something I've heard in a few news outlets around the world. But in the early days of the pandemic, many were, were taking note of the association between countries with women leaders Having all around better COVID 19 response. And in this article, you mention that women are not magical unicorns, to put the quote, quote unquote, there. So, what's the connection? Uh, is there a connection between women leaders and pandemic management that you've seen?
1: That's a great question. And thanks so much for the chance to talk about this. So you're absolutely right. You know, in the early months of the pandemic, this media narrative really took hold in the public imagination, this idea that countries governed by women leaders had better pandemic performance. And at the time, right, that was understood as better efforts at containing viral spread and lower mortality rates. The thing that struck me about that narrative was that the women leaders mentioned really governed particular kinds of countries, meaning wealthy countries, mostly democracies, and in what we would call kind of the global north, right? So Scandinavia, Western Europe, and East Asia. So my question was, well, is this really about women leaders being naturally better at responding to pandemics, or is this about the kinds of countries that when the moment hit, excuse me, when the pandemic hit, were, had women leaders in the first place. So in the article, I looked at some other features of these countries that were likely to elect women, their wealth, their healthcare expenditures, their citizens' trust in government, their ability to have impartial, transparent bureaucracies, and found that those variables explained pandemic containment, mortality, as well as having women leaders. So I suggested that the the connection the media was making was a bit spurious. It was being driven by the kinds of countries that were electing women. Maybe we can talk later about why these kinds of countries were electing women. But in, in terms of pandemic performance, it seemed much more driven by the kinds of capacity and wealth and governments that the country had. The reason I wanted to make that point, and this goes to your question about magical unicorns, was that you know, I, like many others making this argument, want to see more women in office. But the danger of making arguments that women should be in office based on the fact that women are somehow better at certain aspects of government than men is that you're treating women as these kinds of magical unicorns. And in fact, you could be setting women up to fail. We know from other situations in political science and in business, that women are often disproportionately punished by voters for failing to turn around situations of crisis even when they govern in similar kinds of crisis than men. So the problem with these magical unicorn arguments, they're made in good faith. They want to encourage people to promote women to positions of leadership, but they often hold women to higher and double standards. And I think we have to be careful about grounding arguments for women's leadership on these kind of higher and double standards, right? Um, Good governance is something both men and women can deliver. And so women are not sort of silver bullets for good governance.
0: Those are, those are great points, Jen. And, you know, maybe we could actually look at the, the question you raised there is is what was it about these countries that were were electing women? I'm just thinking about in my, you know, sort of roster here about who was who was in power when. Uh, you're right, Scandinavia, New Zealand, of course, Jacinda Ardern just, just made international headlines, uh, not just for New Zealand's very, uh, you know, uh, uh, very low COVID numbers, but it's sort of the way that her her governance approach uh, was there. Like you know, they, but this culture of compassion that always came through uh, Jacinda Ardern's uh, uh, government. But uh, there feels like there's more to it. There feels like there's there's something about uh, maybe it's New Zealand, maybe it's other countries that the way that that board was set up before this crisis emerged really matters. I know that some people have mentioned that. In New Zealand, uh, the very democratic process itself is, is made to be difficult. It's one where it forces parties to, to work together. Very rare do they ever get majorities under that system.
1: Those are great questions. So I think we can pull apart a few things. And so first, your your comment about leadership style, right? Absolutely. So why was this media narrative so compelling? One way it was so compelling was that it confounded our expectations, right? So our expectations for, say, executive leadership, being a president or prime minister, is that you have to be strong and you have to be tough and you have to be decisive. Those are stereotypically masculine qualities. So what happened in the pandemic, of course, was that Yes, leaders needed to be decisive and clear, but there was a value suddenly placed on leaders that were also empathetic and compassionate. And often those are feminine qualities that are associated with sort of weakness or being ineffective. The pandemic, because it's a public health crisis, flips everything on its head. It makes empathy and compassion more valuable. So what made leaders like Jacinda Ardern, um, first of all, she was empirically very effective. But what made her sort of become the poster child for this narrative that women leaders were better was that in displaying stereotypically feminine traits that were so effective, it kind of confounded people's expectations about what makes a good president or prime minister. And those confounding expectation narratives are more... um, sort of popular. We also saw plenty of cases of men leaders like Alberto Fernandez, the president of Argentina, Justin Trudeau, prime minister of Canada, also displaying empathy and compassion during the pandemic. But because they weren't men who were, excuse me, because they weren't women who sort of have to overcome the stereotype of empathy being a sign of weakness. They weren't covered the way Jacinda Ardern was covered. Um, So that's one way to think about, you know, why was this media narrative so compelling? And it was about the instances that that corresponded to what people didn't think would have been true. Now, going to the part where the board is set before the pandemic, that certain countries were going to be better at containing um, at containing the virus. You know, if you look at the rankings of the countries that have done best, um, and that, those rankings have changed because the pandemic's prolonged, what it means to be a good pandemic performer has changed since the early months. You know, one consistent um feature of countries that land in that top 10 is that they're islands, right? So being an island really helps. But if we think about democracy, right, what is a fascinating trend to me is that about 15 years ago, the countries that were most likely to elect women presidents or prime ministers were global South countries, countries in Latin America, Southeast Asia, and Africa. Now the pattern is totally flipped. The countries that are more likely to have women presidents or prime ministers are global North countries, primarily Western European and Scandinavian democracies. And I think that's tapping into something about a broader trend in global politics, about a rise of populism, and where we see populism rising, it's right-wing populism, and it's right-wing populism with leaders who develop a very sort of hegemonic masculine style. Think Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, Donald Trump in the US. And so my thinking is that at the moment, that's not a leadership style that's really accessible to women. And so it's not surprising that countries that are sort of holding off populism, right, that that are more likely at this point to have women coming to power because women are coming through the traditional party system. They're not coming as these kind of outsiders who are breaking the system apart, like Trump and Bolsonaro. And then finally, to your comment, about party systems and stable democracies, right? Places where you work your way up through the party system to become a president or prime minister. Insofar as women might be better than men at leadership, we would call that a selection effect, right? So there's gender discrimination at every way even in Western Europe, even in Scandinavia. So often the women that rise through the ranks have already had to be extra good to get to these positions of power. And so if they are more effective once they're there, again, it's less about essentially being better because they're women and more because they've been tested and more has been demanded of them along the way.
0: So really what we're hearing then is it's it's not just about who is necessarily sitting in what chair, it's the environment in which these systems are really operating, that that are, that are going into to you know whether or not the government can can lead something successfully or or completely fumble it like you mentioned with with the Brazil and with the, the U.S. under under Trump, and I just wonder another caveat there about the islands just to sort of to feed my own interest on this. Uh, there was some research that I was doing earlier in in the year about exactly that point about. Why were islands uh, so resilient during, during COVID? And the quick answer is, well, they border water, right? So that's the one way to do it. And it's easier to control who comes in and out. But there is more to that. It it really depends about how island governance is is set up, if it's done with intentions of putting public health first, or if it's done with trying to promote trade first. And so even in the Pacific, there were a lot of Pacific Island nations that made the decision to say, we don't want cruises. We don't want tourism coming here. We know there's a lot of affluent people who might want to come to the islands and hide out during COVID. We don't want that either. And it really speaks to just uh, what, what people have referred to as a sense of islandness. Do you know what I mean? And I wonder if that's really what we're, what we're seeing here, is that it's, it's the, the culture, the political culture that matters.
1: I think that's a really important point. And so if we think, you know, broadly about political systems, I mean, leaders, political leaders are going to respond to the incentives in the systems that they work, right? And so different kinds of configurations can create incentives to listen to voters, listen to certain segments of voters, um, listen to political parties. Political parties can vary in whether or not they are what we might think about as programmatic parties, meaning they really follow a policy-oriented platform, or political parties might be personal vehicles built around a charismatic individual and that individual has a lot more power to 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 make policy even maybe perhaps, incoherently or inconsistently. And so there's that. And then there's also then the strategic choices that leaders make about what they are going to prioritize. And absolutely, islands are in a tough spot, especially smaller islands in the Caribbean and the Pacific that really rely on tourism, because especially in the pandemic's early months, that was one of the first things to, to disappear. So leaders were also faced with tough choices, right? And, you know, the narrative about which leaders did better or worse is really changing, um, because we're a year and a half into the pandemic, and we've seen all these disparate outcomes, right, in terms of economy, in terms of viral containment, in terms of vaccine access. And so the situation really is much more complex than can be captured in a simple headline.
0: Well, again, fantastic uh, points here, Jen. And speaking of islands, again, uh, there's an island state that uh, I, I read in one of your papers recently that, that you mentioned uh, that, that has sort of uh, gone boldly forward uh, in a paper that I think you prepared for the UN Women Expert Group meeting in March. You noted that the Hawaii State Commission on the Status of Women released a recovery plan with the opening line, the road to economic recovery should not be across women's backs. And this seems like a bold warning against gender inequality from the state of Hawaii. So what is the state commission warning us about then? Uh, you know, what, what do you see as the, the threats to gender equality coming out of the pandemic? And again, I, I find it very interesting that this came from the island state.
1: And, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that Hawaii was the first territory to um, release what we we would think of as a a roadmap to COVID-19 recovery, but that's gender sensitive and in fact is explicitly feminist. So urging governments to think about how they rebuild their economies and their societies after COVID with a lens to gender equality. So... You know, Hawaii, right, it's an island. It relies heavily on tourism. Tourism is a very uh, feminized sector, right? So large numbers of women, indigenous peoples in Hawaii and indigenous women are working in tourism. It's a precarious industry. It's an underpaid industry. It's also an industry that involves a lot of commercial sex work, right? So if you're a state like Hawaii, and you're thinking, okay, what we need to do is sort of reopen to tourists and bring tourists back, Right. Um, That, from the perspective of the Hawaiian State Commission on the Status of Women, could be perpetuating all the kinds of inequalities that make women more likely to be precarious workers, underpaid workers, exploited workers and workers in the commercial sex industry. So the idea and of course, Hawaii is not just warning about women workers in the tourist industry, but that's an example to think about what they want is let's build back better. Let's reinvigorate our economies on the basis of gender equality. So that's both about women as workers. That's about the fact that most jobs lost during the pandemic overall have been in feminized sectors. And we know about the she session. It's not just that women have lost their jobs because industries have shut down and hired fewer workers. It's because with the closure of schools, all those increased domestic care burdens are following disproportionately on women. So what Hawaii is warning about is just going back to normal, because even normal pre-pandemic did not look very good to women, given gendered inequities in the workforce and given gendered inequities in care. So what you see now are Hawaii and then following countries like Canada, Argentina, and even recently the United States making promises to say, invest in universal childcare schemes, universal daycare schemes, recognizing that unpaid care work is one of the largest sources of economic and therefore political inequality between men and women. So Hawaii is warning that that we shouldn't just go back to normal, but they're saying we have an opportunity to find a new normal. And um, it is a really bold plan, and it's captured international attention and has since informed the ways that countries like Canada and other places have been thinking about their COVID recovery.
0: So what are the odds of other jurisdictions, state level provinces, countries uh, on the whole, going forward with more of this sort of enthusiasm for, for call it a waking up to, to these gender inequalities? I mean, everyone was told to stay home for, a, uh, for for over a year, and during that time, you know you could not visibly escape or ignore. These, these inequalities that perhaps the old way of doing business, you could more readily. Uh, do, you, do you see this really catching on?
1: You know, I, I think there's reasons for optimism. And then there's reasons to say, you know, we still face a lot of the same policymaking battles around um, gender inequality that we, we always have. So where are the reasons for optimism? So I mentioned Canada, right? Um, so after the Hawaiian plan, which was released in April 2020, very early into the pandemic, um, you know, it was the template was picked up broadly across the board. So we saw civil society groups in Canada and Northern Ireland, in Scotland, um, making these kinds of feminist COVID-19 response and recovery plans. And the Canadian plan is really the one that's been closest to realization at a policy level. Um, So it, it, the, priorities were adopted into Canada's fall 2020 and then 2021 budget. Uh, so just a few weeks ago, the Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, Chrystia Freeland, when she presented the plan to Canada, it included a sort of record-breaking investment in a universal childcare scheme, and she tied that investment directly to the lesson of COVID, which is that women will not be able to return to the workforce unless the childcare question is managed. And so you see this language being picked picked. picked up by feminists and activists, by women ministers in other countries and other contexts as well, and really trying to change the conversation around what countries see as priorities. The important thing is really pushing that these are not expenditures, right? They're not just government spending on services, but something like investing in care is a form of infrastructure spending. It's what we call social infrastructure. Like building a bridge and like building a dam, it has a long-term investment. It has a long-term return for countries on that investment. So I do see hope in the way the conversation is getting framed on the way these feminist plans are advocacy tools um, for feminist groups to really lobby ministers and lobby governments. Um, But of course, the results are uneven. Because it really depends on the will of those in power uh, to take those demands seriously. And again, Canada is a great example, because even though there's all kinds of ways that that Prime Minister Trudeau might fall short, um, he is at least nominally open to hearing about gender equality and hearing about feminist policymaking. And so he can be pushed to move forward. That's not the case in every country.
0: No, absolutely. And there are still many countries that feel that economic recovery is going to lie just in those things you mentioned about the that infrastructure, dams and and airports. Uh, if we went down the, well, uh, oh, the the classic reverse capital flow of development from the sixties and seventies, but the, but I think the the point that you you're, you're kind of getting um, getting us to think about here is that if things like care and and gender equity are actually deep investments in an economy. One exciting element of this is that unlike investing in a hydroelectric project or an airport where those resources wind up largely in the hands of a few and then trickle out to a few others, that that could be a really important basis for changing uh, economic and social equity across the board. And ultimately, that can be something that some politicians may feel is, is scary because it's, it's harder to, to govern people who are, who are receiving sort of benefits and who are getting, getting uh, themselves in a better position with their lives in that way.
1: Right. I mean, so you could think about, you know, these sort of investments, right. It, it, some people like to talk about, okay, well, the rising tide lifts all boats, right? So if we, if we invest, right, now we are creating conditions where more individuals can participate in the workforce. We can leverage the talent of more diverse individuals. So on the one hand, that's great, but you might say that some others who want to keep the powerful circle a little bit more closed might be afraid of the rising competition from women, from members of marginalized ethnic groups, because, you know, they want to keep the pie small for themselves. So that's really the struggle. And I think calling out um, what's really going on when you hear these kinds of conversations of, oh, well, we simply can't afford it, right? Um, when I did some of this other work for UN Women around, um, again, women's leadership, you know, we found that many of the less wealthy countries were more likely early on to invest in social protection measures during the pandemic, mortgage relief, food aid, than some of the wealthy countries like mine, the United States. And so- this idea of, well, we really can't afford it can often be a way of talking about priorities, and it could often be a way of masking what the priorities really are. So there's resources, but there's also choices, right? And so it's about framing the conversation around those choices that opens up new possibilities. And so that's what um, Hawaii is really setting the standard for us doing.
0: Brilliant. Jen, I, I think you've inspired me to get t-shirts printed that say, we really can't afford it. You know? I mean, <laughs> Because I think that's actually the keys to the safe right there. And one place right now that is having bold conversations that that is about gender equality, that is about trying to make sure that the the chess board is played more evenly, seems to be Chile right now. So these issues, the the opportunities on the horizon, maybe to set new gender equality standards. I'm thinking to what's going on in Chile, the constitutional changes that are going on there. Could you fill us in what's what's happening there and, and maybe comment on on where you see this tying in?
1: Absolutely. So Chile had elections this last weekend. And what they had elections for, in addition to local office, they had elections to elect the 155 delegates who will sit for a year to write a new constitution for Chile. This is really dramatic because it's very rare that countries that are not immediately transitioning from a civil war or a dictatorship decide to rewrite a new constitution. Um, so Chile exited from the Pinochet dictatorship in 1989. The constitution that currently governs Chile, is, a, is the constitution written by Pinochet in 1980 still in effect? So, you know, through a series of widespread protests, widespread anger over social and economic injustice that racked Chile in 2019, the political solution to these protests was to open a process to write a new constitution. And so they elected these, these delegates this past weekend who will do so. So the idea in Chile was that for a new constitution to be legitimate, it had to be written under much more inclusive conditions than the dictatorship era constitution. What did that mean? Well, these political battles took about two years in Chile. But finally, there were agreements that there would be 17 seats reserved for indigenous peoples. So 17 of those 155. That there would be gender parity, not just among the candidates for the Constitutional Convention, but for the elected delegates. And so the idea was, following the elections, um, if if women did not, if equal numbers of women did not win in each district, that the worst Uh, Winners would be bumped for the best losers until each district was sending a gender parity delegation to the convention. And so what's very gratifying about that result um, is that, in fact, that the gender parity rules turned out to benefit men rather than women. In fact, so many women won, they actually had to bump out some of the women in order to get some of the men into the convention to achieve gender parity. And that's really gratifying because those of us who work in women and political participation always hear that women, quote, just aren't up for the job, right? But it turned out it was the men who needed the, the affirmative action in the Chilean Brilliant. case. Brilliant. So they're going to sit um, in the near future, and absolutely, you know, there's already so many conversations from feminists, from Indigenous peoples, from coalitions of feminists and Indigenous peoples articulating their plan of what the new constitution should say. They're not necessarily tying it to COVID-19, but the 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 requests look very similar to what we see in recovery plans like Hawaii. Environmental justice, recognition of the rights and autonomy of Indigenous peoples, social security protection for precarious and marginalized workers, right? Equal rights for women, indigenous people, LGBTQ peoples, right? And so these kinds of transformative proposals, a broader array of citizen social and political rights, getting constitutional status are on the table in Chile. It's still a long road. um, But I think that uh, it's definitely a place to watch. It's really exciting. Um, even if you're not just a political science nerd, it's really exciting to see what a country can do um, in terms of refounding um, its charter and who should be making those decisions.
0: That's, that, it is a really monumental time in, in Chile, I think. And you, you've done so well just to sort of you know, sum it up and, and give us a sense of just what, what it could be on the edge of right now and it's like you say it's a struggle that did not come overnight it's one that is very much grounded to the to to the tentacles of the pinochet dictatorship and that's been very much part of the culture in chile for decades is is very much grass level grassroots community level activism and these discussions that take a monumental length of time to achieve but in this case it seems like it's it's gotten to the point where it's leading to constitutional reform, which I think most political science nerds would would say is a really, really hard thing to achieve
1: it's a really hard thing to achieve, and i I want to underscore too, um, because I get so excited when I talk about Chile because it 's so inspiring and but you know bob your your comments are spot on they really remind us to also underscore the struggle and the sacrifice you know the the protests um, that racked Chile in two thousand and nineteen that paralyzed the country, uh, many of those protesters were met with police brutality protesters died. And so a lot of people put everything on the line to get Chile um, to where it is today. And some people paid a very high price. They paid the ultimate price. And I think that's true if we look at what's happening now in Colombia, which has been paralyzed by very similar protests for the past few weeks. And then in the past year, places like Hong Kong, Belarus. Um, So, you know. People are are fighting, they're investing, they're paying the hard price. But what is inspiring about Chile is that that they can win. Now, Chile still has a long road. The rules for the Constitutional Convention um, require a two-thirds majority to agree on any element of the text, so that will um, force uh, different groups of individuals to, to bargain, um, to collaborate, to horse trade. The elections resulted in a very fragmented um, convention. No one group in that convention will have a one-third majority that gives them the ability to play kingmaker. And then after they redact the Constitution, if they succeed in redacting one, because they could fail, but if they succeed in redacting one, that will still have to be put um, to the voters. So there's a long road ahead, but it is um, inspiring
0: very interesting Jennifer Piscopo and inspiring uh, is a word I would use to to uh to sum up your comments uh for the past half hour it's just been an absolute pleasure to to chat with you about uh, about your research expertise and your insight on what we can expect going forward in a post-COVID-19 world that hopefully sees a tremendous amount more gender equality as as part of the package
1: thank you so much it was really great to have this conversation
0: my pleasure. And for those who've enjoyed listening to, to Jen Piscopo today, uh, feel free to visit the Parliamentary Centre from Ottawa at parlcentre.org and tune into their Democracy Dialogue series. And uh, Jen is uh, part of that series as well and offers her opinion and uh, research findings on a wide range of topics there. Jen, thanks very much again for joining us.
1: Thank you so much.